life 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 is a messy business it is quite a conundrum and to engage with life we invariably ask ourselves philosophical questions either consciously and explicitly or implicitly without our knowledge but to live life requires some semblance of inquiry and in those questions that come to mind we may as Philip Pullman remarked in a recent interview questions about our existential state of being questions about where do we come from is there a purpose in our living how can we be good or indeed do we even need to be good and what happens in life when there are dark events occurrences of evil now these are fundamental universal questions that assail all of us to lesser or greater degrees and prior to the 20th century many of those questions would have been encountered for most of us through religion and you know religion afforded us some sense of security and an answer to those pressing salient questions of disquiet but in a anagory in a secular age who answers those questions Philip Pullman marks upon stories and he feels very much that all those questions create an urgency for us to cleave to stories he says a story will help us make sense of anything but a story is a story we don't have to believe everything in the story to find it satisfying so we can certainly feel that stories are paramount that they are fundamental to our existence when we encounter stories every day of our being and we all have a story to impart no matter what our backgrounds our walks of life our experience every person has a story to convey and that is very much the fundamental message of toastmasters the sanctity of people's message thus we can glean the value of stories and that we are compelled to tell and listen to stories but storytelling is not an innate gift and as you'll discover in today's podcast episode that the art and craft of storytelling be it in prose poetry or in this context of public speaking is a learned craft and in today's episode with my guests of Andy and Jan 
we will delve into the tenets of storytelling and find out what makes for a good story, especially in the context of a public speak speech. And furthermore, are there particular tenets of public speaking storycraft that we can learn and exercise in our future speeches? Hello, fellow listeners. Welcome to the Spa Speakers Podcast, an intermittent podcast series that explores the happenings of events at Spa Speakers, a Toastmasters club based in Leamington Spa. In this episode, we will focus on the art and craft of storytelling. And as ever, I'm joined by Andy and we have a special guest joining us in this episode, Jan, who's also a member of Spa Speakers. Hello, Andy. Hello, Sonny. Really good to be with you again. Yeah, good to, uh, to hear your voice again. And Jan is here as well, standing in for Claire as our special guest. Hi, Jan. Good afternoon or good evening, in fact, uh, Sonny and Andy. Nice to be here. Yep, isn't it? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, because our le- our listeners are are from all around the world. We take we cater for many time zones. <laughs> Twenty four hour. <laughs> so storytelling. Now that's an interesting concept. The premise of storytelling, and you may well wonder that storytelling is a gift that is possibly innate. You may feel that you are born with the ability to craft together and deliver a story. And in thinking along those lines, you may reflect upon authors that you read, famous authors from Ali Smith to Shakespeare and to Philip Pullman, all of these fictional authors that you may encounter. And you may wonder, they just are surely talented and they can tell stories and the rest of us can't. Now, I'm very much firmly of the belief that we can all tell stories and it may be that for the rest of us mere mortals, that we we have to, we are invited to develop, uh, learn and practice and exercise the craft of storytelling to become better storytellers. And that's certainly very much the premise of Toastmasters' view on storytelling, that it is a craft that can be taught and learned. We're going to start off by thinking about stories, our own association with stories. And Andy, let's think about stories, what that mean, what stories mean to you. And can you think of your first experience of encountering stories as a child and maybe the types of stories that you then read? What a deep inquiring question. And Yes, stories mean a, a huge amount to me. And right now, I'm telling stories to my children, helping them 
learn about the world and the the ups and downs and the important values to learn through stories. But my own experience, I, I find it so hard to think back and remember what were those first stories. And it would have been my mum, definitely a, a bedtime story from my mum. And I... I, I, I recall there were certain books that stood out to me. I, you know, I had you know a fair amount of books, but there were certain ones I went back to again and again. And there was one called Sam Sparrow about a story about a, a sparrow that f- f- fleed um, the, the, the busyness of London to the countryside and um, was was welcomed into the the fold and had to set up shop and was. D- doing his very best to find out what the other animals in the in the country needed and um it yeah it's, it's a, a, a story I, I i've actually bought again i'd you know i'd lost it as a kid and i i remembered it and went out and went into ebay and, and bought it and so it's kind of a, a, a treasured feeling and i still get a little tear in my eye when i'm i read it to my kids it feels very much as if that's a, a heirloom that you inherited, Andy. And, mm. uh, and I wonder, why do you feel that you're compelled, almost inextricably linked to this story? What draws you back and forth to this story, this story about a sparrow? It's so hard, I think, to unpick because... There's also the the experience of how you know a, a story isn't always um, that th- there's a connection that we get from stories. So in this case, it would be an experience with my mum that that kind of comforting feeling of my mum reading me the story when I'm all sort of snuggled up at bed. Um, it's, it's, and I think that's any story. I mean, the characters in a, in, in a story we, we read um, connect us to to those all, you know, f- from all walks of life, um, even though it's just through um, the, the pages of a book. Uh, th- this particular one, there, there's something about the sparrow. Um, I'm, I'm trying to analyse it as we speak. The, 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 the sparrow sort of feeling sort of growing up probably into the world and, and, and feeling really quite um, unsure, but knowing that he had to leave London and uh, uh, meeting new characters. Some, you know, would, would would he trust? Would he not? Would he be accepted in, in, in the country? Uh, and eventually, uh, such a cosy, he, f- he found his, his sort of niche, the, the Sparrow did, by... Um, I thought I'm going to spoil an ending here. Um, <laughs> you, if you wanted to pick up the book yourselves, but um, it, it, it ended in a sort of a, a positive, warm, welcoming feeling, and perhaps something I was really craving for as um, a young child at school. So, so the good news is that this sparrow did not meet a sparrowhawk. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I would find it hard to go back to that um, that that kind of tale. But in many ways, I wonder whether this tale resonates with you because there is a parallel. You, you, are, you yourself have fled London and come to the leafy environs <laughs> of yeah. Warwickshire. But, you know, there, are, there is a very powerful yeah. parallel between the story of 
this sparrow and your own journey. And I wonder where that's the the heart of why this particular story resonates with you, because it is inextricably, uncannily follows your own trajectory. Well, that's right. And, and that of my, my parents as well, because they, you know, I was born in Brighton and we, we moved up when when I was a kid and, you know, I remember my, my sister being really nervous at school and my mum my probably had, you know, quite mixed feelings about starting anew when her, her a lot of her connections and friends were in Brighton and it, my dad's work took us to London and it, that it was really a, a new start for the family, but with a lot of nervousness and, 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 and I'm probably thinking back over the generations, how my family have moved around over the country. Um, so sort of my dad's parents from Yorkshire and so, so that story probably represents what, what has happened as a parallel in you know for many generations in so certainly in my family we, we, we've moved around I, I mean Jan what's your take on on Andy's association with this particular story concerning a erstwhile <laughs> sparrow <laughs> Does the sparrow have a name? Oh, Sam, Sam Sparrow. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes, I, yes, yeah. I've not, you did say. I've not heard this story about the sparrow, so I'm going to have to go out and get this, I think, <laughs> and see if, I, <laughs> see if I get the same kind of like warm, fuzzy feeling that Andy's getting about it as well. But um, mm. for me, I, I wasn't really read bedtime stories as a child, and I think that was mainly because by the time I got to bed, it... As soon as my head hit the pillow, I was out like a light. So um, my parents probably didn't have the opportunity to to read me bedtime stories as such. Um, but I would say my first experience would be, I would say being read stories at school. Sitting in school, I think we all used to get together at afternoon break. It's around about two o'clock in the afternoon. And the teachers would just sit us all down on the floor and get a book out and it was usually a fairy tale so it was either something like Little Red Riding Hood and Hansel or Gretel um, and also remember Charlotte's Web um, mm. can I digress and just say fairy tales are quite violent, quite quite violent yeah. <laughs> Little Red Riding Hood was eaten, Hansel and Gretel were put <laughs> in the fire and Charlotte's Web the poor little pig but anyway but they're pretty the grim thing... aren't they I mean they're, these are grim tales <laughs> I've never really thought about it before but I think oh okay but I think that's what a story back then um, when I was a youngster listening to stories tend to have they tend to have a beginning which started out and then it had that crooks in the middle where it was the baddie but the nice thing was it always ended with a happy ending and when the teachers were reading the story, there was quite a few chapters. And what I tend to remember was that point when they got to a certain chapter and stopped. And it was just at the crooks where you knew something was happening. And from an early age then, I experienced being taken along on a ride on a journey whilst the teacher was reading that book until I got up to that point, up to the end of the the chapter and there's that anticipation as to what was happening next mm. and they just closed the book and said we'll find out tomorrow and I love that yes it was irritating mm. at the time because you wanted more but that's what a, that's what a story for me that's what a, a story is meant to do it's meant to take you along it's meant to 
to want you want more and that was my experience of being told stories at a young age I just had that wanting and I was mm. lifted up and taken along and I was totally enveloped in the story and I, I love that about it so that's my experience and it's quite interesting Jan that you refer to the idea of advance you know, the story advancing and it brings to mind Neil Gaiman's assertion that stories are genuinely symbiotic organisms that we live with that allow human beings to advance mm. that's quite a profound mm. assertion but Definitely. it, it seems mm. that Gaiman frames stories as living bodies that can grow and contract they pulse they beat and that very much seems to be the message that I've heard from both of you and your experiences of stories. And, you know, I'm very struck by, in some sense, how, certainly, Andy, your, ref, your reference of Sam the Sparrow's story is one where there is an insulation of ideas. And this is where we can very much treat stories as vehicles of conditioning that... that a depository of wisdom that can confer ideas from one generation to the, the next. And you know, it's little wonder that if we look at indigenous Indians in North America, that there was a great reverence reserved to the person who would conserve the, the flames of the fire, that from camp to camp they would conserve the flames from one fire to the next in a shell keeping the, the flames lit and that was important because without the flames there would be no space for the campfire and that space to share stories albeit oral stories rather than say the written stories that we ordinarily encounter today in, in our in our lives and funny enough you know, my association with stories at an early age was through an oral tradition dad would tell me stories that he conjured up in his imagination that would take him back to his homeland of india and it was in many ways a scenario where there was the gift of the story to me as the child but also a gift that he was giving himself in leveraging him a way to transport himself back to better days, easier, more carefree days of his own childhood. So we can definitely feel that there's a value of stories, be they whatever form that they take, be they written, oral, you know, there is a weight and heft and advantage to, to stories. And with that in mind, there's a great responsibility that comes with telling stories. You know, Philip Pullman refers to, on the various sorts of responsibility incumbent on an author, to himself and his family, to language, to his audience, to truth and to his story, him itself. On the various thoughts, sorts of responsibility incumbent on an author, to himself and his family, to language, 
to his audience, to truth, and to his story himself. So Philip Pullman here casts a whole welter of responsibilities on the author or the speechwriter. And that's, that's, you know, there's a weight. I mean, there's a weighty responsibility there for a storyteller to negotiate. And for our listeners, how do we, how do we handle that burden to bear to tell a story? Well, we're going to spend the rest of this podcast looking at principles of storytelling. And we're going to look at 10 principles of storytelling that will help us to put together a story. Ostensibly in the space of Toastmasters, a speech story. But I believe these principles can be applied to any manner of stories. Are these like the Ten Commandments today, are they? These are commandments <laughs> written in, in stone. <laughs> so let's start with principle number one. Principle number one is smile. Tell your speech as if you're telling it to a friend. No matter who's in the audience, it could be your boss, it could be your friends. Smile and, and tell it as if as if you were telling that story to a friend. I, th- I think, yeah, that that is a really nice way of opening because the style of how a story is put across, if there is a, a big distance, you know, it becomes a big performance, it um, loses intimacy. And having a, imagining like you're just, you're, you're telling a mate, um, you know, in the pub or, you know, going for a walk in the park or something, it, 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 I think it helps bring the, the audience closer to the person telling the story. Yeah, I agree with Andy on that one. Um, definitely. I mean, for me, a smile just helps me to relax from a personal point of view. Um, and I always get the sense if I'm relaxed, then the audience is relaxed too when I'm delivering a story. Mm. So, Definitely. Um, I think that's a really good principle. One is smile. Mm. Yeah. Paul often refers to the notion of closing the gap. And I think he, in some ways, refers to a strategy that creates an ambiance, you know, an atmosphere, a, a room, a, a shelter, sanctuary. And yeah, I quite agree. You know, I think smiling elicits the endorphins, elicits the oxytonin, and it binds us. It creates that safe space for us to listen to the storyteller. It's creating that relationship, that dialogue. Hmm. So onwards to principle two. And this is where you plant. So in principle two, you need to think about the context of the story. And this is where we want to prepare the listener with a setup to frame the ideas of the speech. Yeah. And you know, that bedrock is the details, giving a sense of time, a place, a context to the to the story. It's you know it's about kind of equipping the listeners with factual information. 
And that's quite tricky in a speech. Often we see speakers who, in their urgency to tell their story, tumble into their story, almost parachute into their story, and then forget to kind of provide any of the preamble background information of where they are, what they're doing, what time it is, what's the year. And that can be quite disorientating. Jan, I mean, how do you... What would you recommend to our listeners in how they can quietly sow those factual information into their speech to give some sense of orientation to their listeners? Again, what I feel is you have to bring them into where you are. And that could be giving an age. So you could detail in saying that you're, you're seven years old. You could detail as to where you are. I think I've given a speech where I said I've been crouched behind a hedge. So they basically know what age you are, they know where you are, and you could say that the sun is shining bright. So at that precise moment in time, they've got a picture. They've got an overall picture as to where you are before you continue your story. And those, just those short three points, age, time, setting, they're there. They're there with you in that story. And then from there on, you can progress that story whichever way you, you know, whichever way you like. But just give them that first point and something to go on. It's in their mind and the setting is set. It, it grounds a story. And would you say that you recommend telling those three elements of factual information right at the outset, almost in as if it is an imperative to tell those details within the first few sentences of your speech? From a personal point of view, yes. Um, I want my audience to know where I am at a certain point in time when I'm delivering my story. I don't want to deliver the story at the beginning and there's that question as to where are you? What are you doing? How did you get there? I don't want that intrigue to come you know towards the end I want them to know right at the beginning so they come along on that journey with me and they are 100% sure right at the beginning of the speech where I am and what my setting is so for me personally I like to I like to deliver those three traits right at the beginning of my speech and you're quite right in, in that there is that responsibility to guide the listener through the the thread of the narrative and it is very tempting for some speakers to to opt for the show and tell approach to telling a story and to delay the reveal until midway or towards the latter part of the speech and the risk there is that there is far too much period in the speech where listeners are disorientated and are floundering for understanding and that eats up a lot of their cognitive processing power which then runs the risk that they they miss out on on the richness of the story and you could lose them you don't want to lose you know your listeners right at the beginning you want them there engaged right at the start so as i said for me personally i need to get that detail in right at the start hmm I suppose I've, I've got a side question, which is when does that detail become too much or when does it deviate away from the kind of the, the meaty bit of the, the story? 
Yeah, I mean, we have seen speeches that sometimes get upended through an elaborate menu of factual information Mm -hmm. that can almost block the access of the, the narrative. And yeah, I, I, I think, Jan, you, I think simpli- your approach of simplicity here in three tidbits of information, that quota of three of time, age and place invariably will actually contain the volume of factual information, preventing it from overloading the speech at the outset. Yeah, it it works for me. <laughs> like I say, that's just a personal opinion for me. Um, yeah. Like you say, other people may be different. And I suppose it depends on your audience and it depends on your story that you're delivering as well. So, you know, it, it can be moved around, it can be changed around. But I think the majority of the, the stories that I've told have given the audience something to go on right at the start. And now onwards to principle three, action. Écoutez well, écoutez bien, now listen well. Well, this is where we, I, this principle prescribes the use of, of action verbs to empower your words with arresting immediacy. Think if you would will that these are words that inject shots of adrenaline into your speech. Action verbs, action <clears throat> Sorry, losing my voice. It's a cold at night. It's a <laughs> break open the gym. Yeah, so action verbs, but not overly complicated words. So there's a careful balancing act to be conducted here to in deploy enriching language, but without overloading the the content of the speech. So, how, Andy, how would you exercise the use of action verbs in your speeches? And, and... Well, that's, um, I think, that's really just a helpful question to me because I think part of doing this podcast is helping me become more conscious of what to be aware of within a story. And, you might be surprised to know I've not really paid attention to what kind of verbs I've been using. Um, um, would you know? I don't think of it as as an action verb. I'm just thinking of what would best describe or explain what I need to. That said, they they are really powerful, um, and I believe it is one of our members, Gabrielle, mm. said the word gingerly um, in in her last speech and it is such a powerful word just one um one word to describe a movement it it just said so much and uh it's made me because i don't think i've got to that stage in in um the the pathway to 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 look at sort of descriptive language and yeah that there are so it's, it's starting to make me think more about what you know what would be the most powerful word i could use for um 
And we often refer to what power I need to describe. Three, don't we? It's, um, and in actuality, this particular example, gingerly, mm. the power of one, you know, one word in and of itself injects colour into what, you know, into a speech, taking it from monochrome into technicolour. It, uh, it animates a speech and, and gives it depth. Onwards to principle four. And this is the idea of juxtaposition. And I appreciate it. I've just, you know, a few moments ago said, but well, we wouldn't talk about esoteric <laughs> words. But here we go juxtaposition. What is juxtaposition? Well, you take two sprigs of opposing ideas uh, or images and you meld them together. You place two opposing ideas together to create an alchemy. And that arguably can provide sendery explosions in your speech to, to, um, to wake up your audience. Jan, what's your view on the use of juxtapositions? First off, um, I was going to ask you the same question. <laughs> I, was oh, ask, right. I was actually going to ask you to give me an example. <laughs> I'm thinking of something that I could potentially use in a speech, but I'm struggling in terms of the two sprigs of opposing ideas. The only thing at the moment I can think of, probably similar along the lines of storytelling, would be, kind of like a, a film let's take for example Jaws okay for all you listeners out there that have seen Jaws we have Jaws whereby we have the shark in the water and we've got loads of children swimming about and you can see the fins in the background without the addition of the do, 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 it is just a plain fin in the water. Children are quite happily singing. But if you put the two together, so you've got the scene and then you add that music to it, you create that tenseness, you create that fear. And that's the only kind of example that I can relate to the, the juxtapose that you've just referred to there. Similar to, let's just say, um, Psycho in the shower scene. She's having a shower and he's just walking in. But if you get that, it's it's just something that just builds that crescendo and that's the only kind of example that I can think of in terms of the, the juxtapose that you've you've stated. So I was kind of hoping that you might elaborate on that and you give me give me mm. another example. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> me too. Man types into a search engine and comes up with common examples of juxtaposition. Well, this article refers to these examples of juxtaposition light and darkness beauty and ugliness virtue and vice good and evil actually that brings to mind milton's paradise lost god and satan together in the same in the same narrative uh, modern and antiquated jealousy and trust so effectively just juxtaposition is bringing two diametrically opposed ideas that wouldn't ordinarily hang out together together in the same room of the speech. And possibly then 
actually, I'm sort of thinking that maybe in many ways we just naturally use juxtaposition. And now I'm just thinking whether I've used juxtaposition in my last couple of speeches. Andy, have you, if you think about your competition speech, your humorous speech contest entry? Mm. Yeah, you definitely use juxtaposition in that. There, there was bountiful, a plethora of juxtaposition. Actually, it's had the pro juxtaposition. It's probably juxtaposition I or something. <laughs> that, <laughs> Type into into your search engine. Well, well position. Yeah, concept. Uh, it it's something you mentioned that we yeah I think we just do naturally. Find it hard to think of that speech and think well, well what within it. Uh, there's the part about me being because it was a, a speech about me in a, sort of a steam room spa in South Korea so you've got me a big giant white man in a, a in, in in the far, the far east in a sort of a, a, a sort of a steamy um, in, environment and sort of out of my um, usual context so my, you know that that I think of it as a juxtaposition uh, and that, that mm. and I think going back to what Jan said about the the sort of Jaws example that in a way, the contrast of emotions being together in the same place. So, that you know, the uh, perhaps fun and um, against fear. Um, but, but, you know, the, the children in the film don't see the fear, but we, you know, the the the, the audience can see both at the same time. Mm. Mm. Uh, if you think about Jaws and. Andy, your setting of your humor speech contest, you know, a spa is seen as a place of quiet repose and gentility. And yet the happenings that occur to you in this particular story were very dramatic. And equally said, if we think about Jaws, the beach, the sea, a gentle playground of fun and laughter and yet into this mixed you've got this presence of menace and fear that upends a ordinarily fun gentle safe setting so in some ways i wonder whether juxtaposition is well, actually, the plurals of juxtapositions, by the way, is juxtapositions. Is, <laughs> is that injection of dark matter into something that ordinarily would seem very ordinary and you know, undemanding, everyday humdrum. So possibly that when you want to use juxtaposition in your speeches, think about injecting a few molecules of dark matter into your speech <laughs> oh I do worry what's going to come out now <laughs> uh, on to principle number five gleam so principle five when I encountered this particular principle I was a little bit fuzzy on this particular principle but maybe, maybe we can kind of figure out what this principle was all about so principle five of gleam is where you select 
an ordinary object become the gleaming detail of your speech. Now, this could be one image that encapsulates the essence of your speech. It may just be an ordinary object that is recast into extraordinary frame. It can give listeners an aha eureka moment. And sticking with our cinematic references, I'm going to go with E.T. And I, I'm thinking and seeing the picture of Elliot's bicycle where he rides that bicycle into the skyline to escape his, his uh, sabotage. His, his pursuits. Yeah, fabulous um, film that one. <laughs> oh, I'm embarrassed to say my mind was drawn to to Ghost with Patrick Swayze and and and, and that scene with the the clay. <laughs> Is it what age of our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> we must think of some kind of new, more present, present gleaming detail. <laughs> something in Harry Potter, something hat. Yeah, we've got the car hat. in Back to the Future, haven't we? I think for me, because it's one of my favourite films, it's got to be the ruby red slippers in The, the Wizard of Oz. And uh, that old, there's no place like home. So, and that's the. All along, Dorothy had slippers on her feet. She could have got home after all. You know, she didn't have to go and meet the wizard, the scarecrow, the tin man. She could have got home all along. So uh, meet those ruby red slippers. The power was very much in Dorothy's grasp all along. And (laughs) and who knew that shoes can kick such Mm. a punch? I mean, uh, but I I somehow feel that say the reference to the shoes i mean I, i've never thought of the shoes um as so significant I, I, I was thinking this idea of glee more and objects more to do with say mm. you know, we were talking about fairy tales you think of red riding hood and that, that riding the, like mm-hmm. the, the, the coat or whatever or or three bears and the, you know like a bowl of porridge or i think I, to me it, mm-hmm. it it stands out more an object in those types of stories, but I find it harder to have such um, a strong association in, in films, I think, um, or, you know, big, bigger mm. stories that say. Yeah. I, mean, I think in, in films that there is such a sensory overload with films that with stories and or written or speeches there is more space to latch on to the beacon of, of a mm-hmm. the pulse of a gleaming <laughs> yeah. detail yeah I think I delivered a speech where I got a, a sharp intake of breath and that was because I revealed the object oh, which yes. was a pair of scissors yeah. um, just, just towards the end and you know the the listeners didn't realise what I had thrown at the time because I was just picking up this object blindly and throwing it and revealing that it was a pair of scissors that kind mm. of like just got this gasp from the audience, which you know, which I can only relate to that principle. So, it, in some speeches that you deliver, you know that there, there is that sense that you may have an object that can 
you know, cause that reaction, yeah. which is quite nice when it happens. And what's quite interesting, Jan, with your speech, that you you kept that gleaming detail in reserve. You kept it hidden and activated and, and introduced that gleaming detail right at the end of the speech. Mm-hmm. And so it's an example where with our speeches, it's perfectly possible to retain the gleaming detail in reserve and bring it into play right at the latter part of the speech or conversely to introduce that gleaming detail at the outset of the speech and then for that gleaming detail to reoccur throughout the speech almost as a light motif mm-hmm. that uh, pulses beats through the uh, the chronology of mm. the speech and an opportunity for a prop as well oh Oh, yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Everybody loves a prop. <laughs> yeah, well, and we can think back to 2018 and, and Peter's oh, yes. use of yeah. boot, which he, he brought in as a physical object to, to mirror uh, you know, the mm. content of his speech. Onwards to principle number six. Pass it on. Hand over the spark. This is where, as storytellers, we reflect on our personal experience and are willing to share that with our audience. A personal story very much feels more authentic. And sincerity captivates it, ensnares the listener, grabs the listener by the scruff. So let's think about instances where we possibly have pulled our punches where we might have written a speech which we possibly shied away from being overly open or being too candid or being too transparent. And in doing so, I wonder how that actually affected our end product. Jan, have you ever been in a situation where you've written a speech where you've pulled back from being 100% transparent? Yes. Um, I I delivered a speech on, I think it was Alzheimer's. And because it was very raw at the time, it probably wasn't the right time to deliver it, if I'm all in all honesty. Um, because I had just lost my my mum as a result of Alzheimer's. So I was raising awareness when I was delivering the speech. It was a, I think it was an educational speech. And I just about got through the speech. I held back when I was writing the speech because I was literally in tears writing the speech because it was just, everything that I was writing was just hitting a nerve and you know the the sheet of paper I was writing I was probably sopping wet before I even finished and I thought I can't put this in because I'll never get it out when I deliver it so that was for me an an example of when I actually held back I held back on parts of the speech where I knew that I would just you know be in floods of tears and just kept it simple simply enough to be able to deliver the the topic that I needed to for for, for the educational speech. Uh, and looking back with the benefit of hindsight, mm. do you feel that that had a detrimental effect or 
or a negligible effect or positive effect on the speech? Um, it was positive in the sense that it raised awareness. So what I set out to do was to raise awareness. It was heartfelt just to an extent, but it probably could have been a lot more. But they didn't see that side of me because I held back. So it was a little bit detrimental in that sense. But I say on an overall basis, um, the fact that people were aware of dementia and the different types of was was my main goal, um, which I think I got across. Do you think down the line, you now that a certain period of time has passed, if you were to rewrite that speech again, would you... Would you respond in a different manner? Would you be more transparent and more open? Probably a small percentage. Still not entirely 100% transparent. Mm. Um, But I'd probably, I think over a period of time, then yes. Because I think the worst thing for me would be to break down and not being able to deliver that speech. So I, I need to deliver that speech you know, fully and get my point across so, you know, the audience or the listeners understand where I'm coming from at the time. And they can actually say, yep, I've had that, I've been there. Um, And they won't get that if I can't deliver it. So there probably would be an essence where I would hold back a little bit just so that I can actually deliver and get that point across. So in in some sense, there is that... There is a sense of timing mm-hmm. you know, where a speaker or indeed a writer, you've got to carefully pick and choose the optimum time to deliver your speech. One where you can balance the line in offering a personal recount, but also one where you're sufficiently detach from that personal experience to look at back at that personal experience with more of a somewhat distant um, or desensitized mm. yeah i've heard of it in terms of someone said oh you know we should make peace with um, the story before we we share it i suppose meaning that we've processed it to to a degree and it's I suppose less raw, um, less painful, um, because because it's you know, otherwise really hard to uh, I think communicate it. Um, uh, and I, I've certainly I think done that where there was a, a speech I did. My wife's granny had passed away, and it's fairly. I, I actually remember, yeah, Jan, Jan had, mm. had heard this, and it, it was very raw and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it was just a, a bit of a, a blur to me doing it, and I I don't know how I was connected with it, but I, and I, I partly regret doing it because uh, it was almost like um, getting out the emotions for for me. But in terms of the audience hearing it, I think they were sort of left feeling quite um, uh, it's been a potentially sad and um, uh, didn't not much resolution for, for, for the audience. Um, and perhaps I think it was a bit unfair um, uh, and, and, and not a particularly, I don't think, effective sp- sort of s- speech as such. It was, um, but it, 
with that said, in contrast, I've, I've given, a, I think, a speech, um, one of my icebreakers, um, about um, my, my story around being a cancer survivor. And I think at that point when I did it, 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 was, it, was, it was better, it was more, um, I had a better handle on it and about how I, I wanted it to be received. And uh, so, yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's received really well. Yeah, oh. yeah, very much so. Thanks, folks. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, principle six, which refers to, you know, using your personal experience to tell and engage, uh, to tell a story and to engage with the audience, it does converge on principle seven to be naked, to be vulnerable. And two are very much interwoven those two principles of passing it on and being naked in a speech and with that in mind i mean i'm thinking back andy to your speech about your grandma that the immediacy of that speech enabled it to be fortified with Mm. vulnerability which possibly might have been lost down the line if you were to deliver that speech in 2023 that quota of vulnerability would have diminished but then arguably then the flip side of that is then you that with more of that distance it may then enable you to be more transparent about the personal experience so in some sense there's a formula here that to be vulnerable and yet to also be transparent, mm. there is a question of timing, choosing the optimum time where the personal experience is still, can, you can still feel the, the heat of that personal experience, the weight of that personal experience, and yet to be sufficiently stepped back to to then be more willing to be less guarded. On to principle eight. <laughs> it's like the it countdown, talk, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> principle eight is smell it. Invoke a listener's sense memory. So in a speech, you want to ensure that the experience is tagged to a specific sense. And this is where there's an argument that a story should be coupled to one primary sense. It could be smell, sight, sound, taste, or touch. It's making your speech tactile. Now, that's that's a very interesting principle. And... Mm. And I'm sure we can debate until the cows come <laughs> Should a speech be coupled to one primary sense? Or is it okay to light the fires of all of our senses or multiple senses in a speech? Jan, what's your thoughts? I definitely think you should have more than one sense um, and not restrict it to just the one sensory lens. Mainly because... Again, you need to bring your audience into your story. So if you're, let's just say you're walking through a Christmas market, 
you want a sense that you're there as well. So you can see the lights, you can smell the mulled wine and you can sink your teeth into a hot mince pie. And simply just walking through a Christmas market is, you know, it's just a little bit mundane. But if you can get that sense that, that you're there as well, you can smell what the, the reader is or the, the, the speaker is saying and you can taste what they're saying when they're dipping their teeth or sinking their teeth into that hot mince pie and you get that warm fuzzy feeling inside and that's what a story does just having the one sense again depending on what your story is for me isn't enough you need that full 360 experience so for me yes definitely mm. more than one sensory lens well I, I'm in Andy, total agreement thoughts? and I I think that's why I love Jan's stories, and it's making me hungry. And I'm already, I'm, 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 I'm mentally in that in that Christmas market. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm in full agreement. I, I like the multiple options, the, the sort of through through the sensors. But I'm, I suppose I'm struggling to think. Well, what is the benefit of of just having one one lens? Um, and I, I know I, I tend to favour my my nose and. Often there's smells within my stories. I, I refer um, to, to, to odors, and all, um, but but I don't understand what, why um, what, why why do we only on yeah, one? Does it just make I'm it more sure. powerful through one sense? Or I, I don't really understand that. Yeah, it's a good question, and I, and I wonder where the rationale is for embedding a story along the lines of one primary sense. And I, I wonder whether it is a case of amplification, you know, repetition by focusing on one primary sense and repeating that primary sense mm. can can heighten and exaggerate that one sense. And, and maybe there is also a sense, sorry, a notion that uh, using a multifaceted array of senses and sensory reactions can possibly overload some listeners. But, you know, I, I am inclined to agree with both of you that the speech, any story can, should be multifaceted and that deploys all of our senses, mm. if at all possible. I think my, my one caveat there would be, I think it, it does also depend upon the time constraints that you're operating within. You know, within a you know, three-minute speech, it's going to be much more difficult to mm. bring into play a whole manner of different senses. And there you probably would need to just be efficient and focus on one primary sense, whereas in a 20-minute speech, there's much more space to gamble with. Onwards to principle nine. <laughs> We're nearly there. Yay! Hurrah. We're getting there. Yeah, dinner ready. <laughs> Principle number nine. Be here. Bring yourself to the story. So often you know, we are conditioned to be impartial, to distance ourselves from our own stories, to treat our own stories with reproach. Now, I'd argue that in some ways this is quite a societal characteristic arguably quite intrinsic to us Brits and in some ways maybe we should be more willing to 
be the star of our stories. That's difficult, isn't it? How do we put ourselves centre stage when our cultural mores discourage us from hogging the, hogging the limelight? Jan, what's your prescription on, on how a speaker can tell their story, be centre stage and yet not hog the limelight? Not hog the limelight? Ooh. I think you have to kind of. If you're telling a story and be in your story, then for me, if you're not, there's no authenticity. Um so I can't see how you'd benefit if you were on the outside looking in. It would be like me telling your life story, Sonny. It mm. wouldn't feel right me telling your story. I have to tell that story. I have to be centre stage. Um, it's like we've become a nation of, I don't know, we could say voyeurs. We want to know what's going on in other people's lives and, and social media whilst it has its negatives the the true positives are we can learn from other people's stories so when they tell their stories and they're in their story we can learn from that so we can go along for the ride we can feel their their vulnerability we can feel their pain their joy their happiness and we only get that because they are center stage of their story it's about them and it's like if you watch i love true movies and i'm more probably geared to watching a true movie as opposed to watching something that's not because I want to know what happens because I know it's real life and I want to know the ending as to what's happened and I want to grab hold of that again a difference between a biography and an autobiography I would more lean towards an autobiography because it's it's something about that person that person is center stage it's about them so I would encourage to be in the story and to be part of the story and to be centre stage because people want to know more about you, how you started, how you developed and how things ended. So so that's my take on it. And John, in many ways, your assessment of principle nine and the centrality, almost the necessity of presence at the heart of the story is interlinked with principle six to, to be authentic to share that personal story and we can see that these principles are all interlinked they are far from them being standalone components islands of criteria that they are in many ways jigsaw pieces of the same picture fundamentally connected and this brings us to principle 10 the finale <laughs> feel the force let, let go young luke let go mm, yes feel the force you had to get some sci-fi in there didn't you sonny ah uh, yes yeah it's winter time yeah gotta bring some sci-fi reference in and yeah we've got our sponsors you had to yeah, Mr. Lucas is banking on us to... Uh... to you by stores. <laughs> I start heavy breathing down the microphone. <laughs> Please don't, I'm too young. <laughs> so, yeah, principle 10, feel the force. You know, trust your speech to build up to an emotional crescendo. And this is where you 
as a storyteller, you want to layer the Battenberg layers of your speech to hit that sweet spot, the emotive punchline. And how do you do that? How do you gently and unobtrusively layer your speech, your story, with an incline that reaches the summits of that emotional powwow crescendo. Andy, how do you recommend our listeners create those layers in their speech that builds them to that emotional outpouring or epiphany or eureka moment for me it's truly a, a work in progress and it's something i i aspire to achieve i think i i, I would say it's it must be about getting a grip of yourself as a as a speaker and not to get too emotionally um what's the word uh kind of high too soon so if you know if you're picking up the energy too quickly at the start you're going to sort of come to a crescendo and it's the idea you've really sort of given a clue that the building up of that energy through the speech and in different ways. So I imagine through through tempo, through taking people through an emotional journey and and Jan mentioned about the idea of a cliffhanger, that suspense we create through through, through speeches and, and that kind of craving of wanting wanting more and to build it up and up and up and up until it it, it, it does um, it kind of explode um, <laughs> that's my fantasy it's, I've never achieved it in, <laughs> I've never achieved that in the speech but uh, <laughs> I, 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 I think you are you're very kind to me oh. <laughs> And that's interesting. I think in some ways, Andy, you're in your reflection, you feel that you consciously have not built those layers. And yet clearly how you built those layers to build that emotional crescendo, it's been an intuitive process. And I, and I wonder whether when we look at these principles of storytelling, some of these principles are very cognitive. They are principles that you have to consciously think about. Whereas the this last principle arguably is one that you don't necessarily need to think too much about. It will just naturally occur if you've invested in all the other principles of your story, then intuitively that emotional heft, that crescendo will naturally emerge from mm. your story and perhaps perhaps not on um on this kind of a zoom online format we're using at the moment but that that energy we kind of build with it, that connection with an audience and it, it sort of evolving throughout through the speech um that i suppose that's the most beautiful way of uh, achieving it mm. Mm, definitely it's a little bit like sort of playing a racket game with the audience, which you can get in a public physical space, which is much more hard to, to pull off when you've got the, you know, the the glass window of a Zoom meeting speech to contend with. Mm-hmm. 
Well, fellow listeners, we're coming to the close of our podcast episode on the principles of storytelling. These principles that you can possibly apply to your speeches. Before we go, I'm just going to ask Andy and Jan some final summing up thoughts and recommendations on some top tips on how we can cultivate the craft of storytelling in our speeches. Jan, what's your top tip? Top tip, I would say, ensure your speech has structure. Um, I know it's easy to say to have a start, a beginning and end, but it's really important that these are, you know, the, the, the crux of your speech. Without this, um, you've got no direction. In terms of all the, say, the, the 10 principles, one of the most important ones for me is to pass it on, to pass it on and to to be there. Principle nine and principle six. Everybody's got a story. Um, we don't think so, but everybody's had life experiences and no matter how small or how big, those stories need to be told. Everyone else out there wants to hear them. And what I do, I tend to listen to other people's stories and I pick up skills and experiences and you can learn from that. So your story can be told. And because it's your story, it's easy to memorise and it's easy to deliver. And if you put those other little pockets of principles in, then you'll just have a, a fabulous speech at the end of it. So that's my takeaway for, for for the listeners today. Ah, interesting. So all the 10 principles, not all of these principles are equal. There are some that have greater validity than others. And you know, number six and number nine, they are the lodestone principles by which the 10 principles hang. Andy, what's your, your tip for our would-be storytellers? Just do it. Just do it. Just yeah. Tell 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 a story. You got so many to tell, and I, I feel like I could um, just echo what Jan has said. And I, I I'm not going to. She's summed it up really well. And I would just say that mm. that for me, giving a speech without notes, the easiest way to do it is through a story. To to um, to weave a thread that binds the audience to the speaker. Yeah, no, no need for notes because it, it, it sticks in my head. A story sticks in people's heads. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think what we can certainly all agree is that a story is a communal experience. It is a shared and mutual experience and one that is predicated on inclusivity. So fellow Toastmasters, fellow listeners and most welcome guests, go out there, tell your story. You deserve to be the star of your story. And boy, are we waiting to listen to your story. Until next time, shout for now.
The 10 principles of storytelling that we have explored in today's episode have been taken and inspired from Do Story by Babette Buster. Ten principles of storytelling that we have explored in today's episode have been taken and inspired from Do Story by Babette Buster. <laughs>